0: This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Piero Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're finishing chapter 24. In today's passage, Jesus explains the advantages of being a follower of Christ. It's not just that we have eternal life we have peace in troubled times. And because the Bible tells us about God and what to expect in the future, we have the advantage of resting in God's promises and being ready for what lies ahead. But Jesus also gives a stern warning to those that would disregard the Bible and the reality of the coming judgment. Those that choose to do so will face dire consequences. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So we pick
1: up our study again in the Olivet Discourse, a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. Here we are in chapter 24, and I want to read for us verses 42 through 51. That's the passage we're going to cover today. Follow along with me if you have your Bibles with you. Therefore, be on the alert. Jesus says, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is a faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, church, let's obtain from this passage here divine wisdom for how to deal with anxiety and stressful times, because that's the application of this passage here. In fact, I titled today's sermon, The Application from the End Times. You see, we study the future in order to learn how to live today. Why? Because we don't live in the future. So we can't live in that hypothetical future. We live in the present. Can't live in the past. It's done. It's done. So let's obtain divine wisdom for stressful times. There is a twofold application from this passage here that deals with the end times. The first one we're going to call the advantages of alertness, verses 42 through 47, the advantages of alertness. Now, Jesus summarizes his answer to the disciples' question in verse 3 with an application. Now, he provides the practical exhortation to those who will live during the days of increasing birth pains. Remember this, from verse 8, he says, in the future... In those times, there will be increasing birth pains. So, obviously, he's addressing the generation who will be living during those days, but the application is timeless because the Word of God transcends time. He also encourages us, present-day followers, to remain vigilant. The principle is timeless, remaining vigilant. And we are to live as if His return is imminent. That's the point. We are to live today as if we are going to see Jesus at any moment because, guess what? If you are a believer in Christ... You could see Jesus even today if the rapture happens within our lifetime. So the first advantage of alertness here from verses 42 through 44 is readiness. Besides commanding his followers to be wise and to be steadfast and to learn, verse 32, Jesus now adds, be on the alert. So these are commands. These are not suggestions. And the reason he says that, church, is because vigilance is a hallmark of faithful believers. See, if you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, you don't need to be consumed by anxiety or worry, but we do need to be vigilant because the Bible tells us to be vigilant. And we are vigilant, but at the same time, resting in his promises, resting in his providence, resting in his care, casting all our anxiety upon him because he cares for us. So, Readiness, vigilance, the hallmark of faithful believers. Now, Paul instructs the Corinthians, for example, elaborating on the same message, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. He instructs the Ephesians, be on the alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints. Ephesians 6, verse 18. To the Thessalonians, he writes, let us be alert and be sober. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6. To Timothy, Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. First Timothy 4, verse 2, to Titus, he says, be ready for every good deed, Titus, Titus 3, verse 1, and to drive his point home to the disciples. Jesus then employs an illustration of a thief in the night, something they would be very familiar with, all of us are. And later on in the book of First Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, Paul employs the same illustration when he says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the, in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now, why does Paul say you know full well about this? Because they had read the words of Jesus Christ, both about the thief in the night and the birth pains. That's why Paul says the day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night. And then he also borrows the illustration from Christ about a woman with child or in labor pains. Now the command to stay on guard for all of us here due to the suddenness of Christ's return here prompts us to ask two questions. So if we are told by Scripture to stay on guard, stay alert, now what exactly are we to guard? What are we guarding? And that'll help us with our anxiety, because if we're guarding the wrong thing, then we're, we're, it's foolish, we're making a mistake. Now again, Jesus warned the disciples that during the tribulation of the end times, false messiahs will mislead many. Remember that? Chapter 24, verse 4, false messiahs will mislead many, but not the elect, he says, because the elect will remain alert, verse 24. He says, if possible, they will mislead even the elect, but that's not a possibility. Now, these false teachers, therefore, will go after people's faith. And here I answer, what are we guarding? We must guard what is more precious than gold, according to the Bible. Peter tells the believers in Asia Minor who were facing anxiety and persecution from Nero, and he says that our faith as believers in Christ is more precious than gold, 1 Peter 1, verse 7. So obviously that's what we must guard. We must guard our faith. We must identify and neutralize threats against our faith in Christ. And that's how we remain vigilant. That's how we remain on guard, especially in times of heightened anxiety. We do it with the confidence that he fights our battles. And that's what brings us rest because we are to remain vigilant And we know that we lack the resources, of course. We lack the resources to guard our faith, but he doesn't. In fact, he remains in control of the universe. He remains in control of every situation, and he has unlimited resources. And he is the one who commands us to guard our faith. In fact, he promises that. He wants us to enjoy that type of peace. He says, we have the promise in in Philippians 4, verse 7, that the peace of God, which surpasses all knowledge, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You ask, Pastor, then what is that? How is that possible? How can you explain that? I cannot explain that because it surpasses all understanding, the Bible says. Uh, And Jesus himself, therefore, will preserve our faith and our sanity in times of stress, because he already told us to remain vigilant, remain on guard. That is our job, and he will fulfill his job. He always does that. Now, we may, from time to time, fail to fulfill our duties, but he will never. Even when we are faithless, the Bible says, he remains faithful. So that's the first question what are we are regarding. The second one is, how do we identify and neutralize threats against our faith. By the way, we know for a fact that our faith is constantly under attack. More so Jesus says during the period of the tribulation of the end times, then how do we identify and neutralize threats against our faith? I'm glad you asked. Now, first of all, we must recognize that our enemy wants to rob your joy Just keep that in mind. The devil you're in, by the way, your enemy is not any one, any one person because we war not against flesh and blood. Our, our struggle is against the principalities and powers of the air, against Satan and the kingdom of darkness. So the politician with whom you disagree is not your enemy. The unbeliever in your neighborhood is not the enemy. The enemy is the devil. He wants to rob your joy. He wants to live a life of sorrow. He doesn't want you to experience the joy of the Lord. Why? Because the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you can weaken your enemy, it's the oldest trick in the book. If you can weaken your enemy, then you can overcome him. So he wants to rob your joy and your confidence in Christ. That is why... Peter alerts us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8, and Jesus alerts the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, in John 10 verse 8 he says that, but thankfully for our great comfort he continues that verse and he says, the enemy came to steal, kill and destroy, but he came that we have life and life in abundance. Now, abundant life, church, means not the absence of anxiety, not the absence of trouble or trials or stress, but the ability to overcome these things. So we must never forget. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, verse 4 tells us. Therefore, one of the greatest blessings of our new life in Christ is in the present the ability to deal with anxiety, doing stressful times in a way that is spiritually healthy and brings honor to God. So toss the bottle, toss the joint, turn off the news. This is how we identify and neutralize threats against our faith. Number two, so that's strategy number one. Number two is after we identify the threats against our faith, we must, according to the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear this, church? We are to lay aside every sin. But we like our sins so much we have pet sins. There are sins that we keep. But the Bible says lay aside every sin because we are running a race, not against each other, but with each other. That's an illustration that Paul uses all over the place. He's very fond of athletics illustrations. He talks about the fact that believers are running a race. There is a finish line, and at that finish line, Jesus Christ is there waiting for us with his reward. But church, check this out. Not only that, Jesus lives in us, and that's the hope of glory we're told in the New Testament, and he is in us, encouraging us and giving enabling grace to run the race when we feel like we need to drop out, when we are exhausted. When we feel like we can't go on anymore because of the anxiety and the stress of the time. Let me talk to you about the second advantage of alertness here. We're going to call this rewards, verses 45 through 47. Now, faithful vigilance produces the approval of Christ. And it's right there in the text. He uses that illustration here to tell us that. It's a mini parable. He talks about a master who leaves temporarily and delegates authority, to at least two servants here. We're familiar with parables by now. This is not a real story. This is a fictitious story here. Obviously, Jesus is the one who the master symbolizes here or represents because the master is going away and is coming back. And the context of the Olivet Discourse tells us exactly that. So the faithful servant here symbolizes believers who will witness his return. Clearly. I mean, just that's what the context tells us. Now, there's another element of this story here, which is the feeding the household of the boss, the household of the master, at the proper time. And obviously, that signifies zeal, diligence, love, and care for his family because he says this is the household of the master. And the faithful servant is vigilant. Doing what, church? Taking care of the household of the master. Serving the other first, not thinking about self first. See, he's not idle. He's not just selling everything, climbing on a tree and waiting for the Lord to come back. What he's doing is he is taking care of the people of God. Another important element here of this idea of being ready. We not only take care of our own faith, we take care of each other's faith. And how we care for one another determines our level of faithfulness to the master. Church, we have a tremendous opportunity in our hands. Days of adversity, a feature of the time that will precede the return of Christ here, and to a lesser scale, to a a smaller scale here, our days. Days of adversity like that provide more opportunities than we would have in in times of prosperity and in times of tranquility. You see, so it's not all bad that inflation's at an all-time high and, and there are rumors of wars in Europe and all of that. And what's going to happen in November in the election and in two years? Oh, man, who's going to... Leave that on the track. Toss those anxieties in, in the lap of God and live your life like he wants you to live, caring for one another. See, other-centeredness must replace self-centeredness. If there is ever an appropriate time, now is that time. Let's think of the other first. Let's see how we can take care of each other's faith. Let me give you an example of, of how we can do that in terms of caring for one another. Don't place any unnecessary burdens on people, on your brothers and sisters. In times of stress are especially susceptible for that. When you place unnecessary burdens on people's shoulders, people who are already overwhelmed with anxiety. Don't cause him or her to sin. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, someone came to see me. In a state of anxiety, of stress that I've never seen that person before. And she told me what had happened, what had triggered the anxiety. Someone had given her the quote unquote inside scoop of something that they thought was going on in the church and whatever. I said, how unloving is that? You have no idea what's going on. By the way, what you're saying is not true. And this is not something you need to worry about. So we were able to lovingly shepherd that person and the other two towards not doing that, because that's not productive. That doesn't take care of our faith like we should. So toss the gossiping, all right? Our tongue is very powerful. Resist your natural human tendency and mine toward gossip. Use your mouth and your tongue to praise God, to worship the Lord, and to lift people up. Now, Listen to verse 46 again, All that starts, blessed. Now, where do we know that word from? Remember that word from the Beatitudes, blessed, 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 blessed. That word means happy, beyond circumstances, extremely fortunate, beyond your ability to comprehend, and there's the exact same word that Jesus is using here in verse 46. He says, blessed is that slave, referring to the faithful slave whom his master finds taking care of the family. So, what we know, church, then, is, and how we need to apply this is, it is always appropriate to care for one another. It is never okay to not care for one another. It is never okay to look out for your own interests first. Philippians 2, verse 4. Now, If you're worried about that, if you say, well, if I look out for other people's interests, then who's going to look out for mine? It's a good question. It's an appropriate question. It's a self-protection type of a question. It's okay to ask that. The answer is from Scripture. God will take care of you. He says, you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and everything will be added to you. Everything you need. And, and remember, God has unlimited resources. He loves you with an everlasting love, a fatherly affection. He wants to give you good things. That's a, in the book of James. We're told that every good gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of change. So you just take care of his people, and he'll take care of you. That's how it works in God's economy. So every kind word you ever uttered to someone, every cup of water... You give to a fellow human being, especially to your brother and sister in Christ. God will reward you for it. So in a general sense, to your fellow human being, but more so to your fellow believer. Why? Because Galatians 6, verse 10, Paul says, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So you and I are called upon to do good to all people but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's the second part of this twofold application for the society plagued with anxiety. Now, it's a contrast. And how do we know this is a contrast? Because the very next word in the text here, verse 48, is but. But if that evil slave says in his heart and so forth, we know that this is a contrast. So the advantages of alertness, now we're going to talk about the dangers of disregard. See, that's the opposite. Verses 48 to 51, Jesus talks about a counterfeit follower here, a nominal affiliation with the master. And that's very obvious because this evil slave looks, sounds like the real deal, but he's not. And He demonstrates this lack of real affiliation with the master by a careless attitude. And as a result, Jesus will group him with the hypocrites, he says here. And again, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've met the hypocrites. We know what they are. Remember, the word comes from the ancient Greek description of an actor, someone who pretends to be someone he is not. They would even wear that mask and, and perform in front of a crowd. But Jesus says, is talking about here the hypocrites who profess but don't possess faith. You see, this is what he's talking about. Professors of faith, but not possessors of real faith. So the first danger of disregard for Christ and his return and for his people is carelessness, verses 48 through 50. Now, there's an internal monologue here that Jesus describes in this story here. This evil slave says in his heart. So in this story here, this evil slave is talking with himself. It's not a dialogue. can't do that if you're talking to yourself. It's a monologue. And in this monologue, he displays a lack of concern. And that lack of concern is followed by violence. Did you notice that? He's not just neglecting to care for the needs of God's people. He's violent towards them. Jesus also talks about the fact that this evil slave also engages in loose living. The false believer also believes that the master would not call him to account anytime soon. That's a lack of faith. And as a result, he presumes on the forbearance of the master. He says, well, he's not coming anyway. Well, he's he has delayed already all these years, but he fails to realize that this is a perceived delay. You see, church, from God's perspective, time is something that you and I need. He lives and he exists outside of time. So there's no delay on his part. The delay is in our our part here because we use time to measure things, not God. God lives in the eternal present. He is the I am. He exists outside of that reality. So the, the evil slave here doesn't consider turning from his evil ways. He doesn't see this as an opportunity to make things right to get his life in order, to reassess his commitment to the Father and say, perhaps I've been a false Christian all my life. Now it's time for me to come and become a real believer. Well, he still has time. And in this story here, his carelessness will result in punishment. And what, what this guy is doing here is what many people do. Many people suppress the truth of the existence of God. And they act like this evil servant here. And, and some of them may be in the, in churches. So this is an example of this. Here And people like that, they profess faith in Christ, but they live like atheists. Big mistake. This is why moral relativism is so dangerous. You can't just invent your own truth. No, you you have to pursue, love, and live by the real truth. That's even a, a redundancy, the real truth. No, there's only one truth. And by the way, truth is more than the concept. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So our job is to know the truth because the truth will set us free. And when people say, I live by my own truth, the reality is that the truth will catch up with them eventually. The truth exists. The truth will demand an account of your life and of my life. Unbelievers and counterfeit believers represented by this evil slave in this little story here will panic at the second coming of Christ because they will face Jesus Christ as a judge because they have failed to recognize him as a savior. Well, they will see him as a judge at an hour they do not expect. They will be caught off guard. They will be caught by surprise. They have purposefully, willfully ignored all the signs. No one on that day, church, Listen to this very carefully. No one on the day of the great white throne judgment will be able to say to the Lord with a straight face, I didn't realize you were God. Romans 1 says that everything there is to know by God is revealed by his creation. That's general revelation. There's specific revelation that is the word of God that we need to understand his character and nature. So let's finish with the second danger of disregard for Christ and his return. Verse 51 here, a graphic language, he will cut him to pieces. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, is Jesus really going to do that? Jesus is not talking about a literal mutilation here. This is a figure of speech, and we need to understand Jesus used the figures of speech here many times. And by the way, this is not very foreign for us. We use the same type of figure of speech We, For example, we refer to criticism. When we receive criticism, we say, oh, so-and-so has tore me to pieces, or he tore the other person apart. You see, that's a figure of speech to describe the tragic end, which is condemnation for false believers and unbelievers who will say, well, Jesus is not really coming back. This is all fictitious. The Bible is not true. Boy, they'll be in a lot of trouble, and we must pray for them, that they will snap out of their foolishness before Jesus comes back. Now, Jesus shifts to literal mode after using this figure of speech here and describes in no uncertain terms how he will group the counterfeit servant, the counterfeit slave here, the, the evil slave, with the hypocrites. He says now, in, in the end of all, the, all this, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Church, where is that place? There are other places in the New Testament that talk about that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lower Hades. Because after that is the lake of fire where there will be eternal suffering, where the worm never dies, the Bible says. So they will be sent to condemnation forever. They'll be in lower Hades, to be specific, and they will be resurrected on the great white throne judgment in order to be sent to the lake of fire. Because they have failed to place their faith in Christ. But you may be asking, Pastor, uh, I haven't always been vigilant like I should. Should, should I fear that? And I'm glad you're asking that. That's an important question. But no, you shouldn't fear condemnation, church, because the Bible is very clear. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Romans 8, verse 1, for those of us who are in Christ, we will not be condemned. We just need to make sure that we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling because Paul, again, says that in Ephesians 4, verse 1. That's how we remain vigilant. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but without the fear of condemnation. We fear the Lord. It's the beginning of all knowledge, we're told in the book of Proverbs. But we we don't fear His presence because we are told to rest in His providence and in His presence. Now, everyone in the Bible that reports having seen God face to face, the holiness of God, reports being frightened, and we would have the same experience. That's why He doesn't show up. But the point is we are to live today as if... We are to give an account to him any time of the day. And contrary to the perspective of unbelievers, this expectation fills us with hope and joy.
0: If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.